We continue our class series on My Time Has Come today. And I want to remind you that I'm telling these events as a story. I've drawn from all four Gospels, and I've just combined their accounts and their dialogue into a single story, kind of putting things in an order that makes overall sense to me. <laughs> there are many ways to tell this story and to put the these events in order. So you can read the individual, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John accounts separately on your own and decide for yourself what may have happened. I'm, I'm just giving you a little disclaimer here that, you know, if I say that something happened and you flip to Matthew, it might not be in Matthew. It might be in one of the other ones. So when we left off last week, Jesus had been arrested and taken before the Sanhedrin, the religious governing council that's made up of the high priest and other Sadducees, as well as high-ranking Pharisees and other legal experts. These, these are these are the big shots in the religious leaders. So the year um, is showing here is thirty-seven ninety, uh, which I explained in another class. But this this would be thirty in our common era. Jesus' arrest and trial um, with the Sanhedrin happened in the wee hours of Thursday morning before dawn. When Jesus confirms plainly to the high priest that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the one to be seated at the right hand of God, the one prophesied, the Sanhedrin finally has what it has been seeking, an admission that is punishable by death at the hands of the Romans. For the Messiah is prophesied to be king of the Jews. And for Rome, there is no king but Caesar. When Judas Iscariot realizes Jesus has been condemned to death, he is horrified. He repents. He changes his mind. He tries to return the 30 pieces of silver to the Sanhedrin saying, I have sinned. He is innocent. But they reply, what do we care? You will see. I think they're saying that Jesus is guilty in their sight and they have the proof they need now. And they're about to send Jesus off to the Romans. It is out of Judas's hands. Judas flings the silver down and runs out. In despair and self-loathing, he hangs himself. This leaves the chief priests with a dilemma. What to do with the money that's on the floor? They agree it cannot go back into the temple treasury because it's blood money. So after some discussion, they decide to purchase land from a potter who has a field for sale. They turn it into a cemetery for others, xenoi, the word we get xenophobia from, the fear of others. Jesus's blood money went so that the foreigner, the stranger, the other could be buried with dignity. Matthew says this fulfills the prophecy of Jeremiah, but either Matthew got that wrong, which I think is unlikely, um, or there's been a, a scribe somewhere who's messed with the text because Matthew isn't talking about Jeremiah's prophecy here. He's talking about a prophecy in Zechariah. It's very likely that a scribe somewhere changed Matthew's text because the scribe remembered Jeremiah's famous story of the potter's vessel. That's that's, you know, if you think potter in the Old Testament, that's where your mind goes. And I bet that scribe knew nothing whatsoever about Zechariah's prophecy. So even though our versions of Matthew say Jeremiah, <laughs> the versions that we have, it is actually Zechariah's prophecy that Matthew has in mind. So we need to look at it. God tells Zechariah to go shepherd the flock that has been marked for slaughter because their buyers slaughter them with impunity. So this is the old prophecy that, that we're talking about. Zechariah, in, in Zechariah, the Lord says, the buyers revel in the riches gained from the slaughter of God's people. 
So obviously God is talking about people here, not sheep or goats. So Zechariah does this. He takes special care of the people who are poor and humble. He has two shepherd staffs. One he names Delight and the other he names Union. And and I love this as a picture of how God's leaders should shepherd his people, guiding them in the ways of God, the ways of delight and union. As a high-ranking priest, Zechariah does have some actual authority over the religious leaders of his day. And with one month, within one month, Zechariah fires three of the former so-called shepherds, um, religious leaders. But Zechariah writes, the flock loathed me. That word in Hebrew means more than just despising. It means, it also means cutting off. So even though Zechariah rescued them from terrible leaders, the people utterly reject Zechariah. Zechariah, seeing that the flock refuses to accept him as their shepherd, cuts the staff called delight in two as a symbol of the Lord voiding the covenant he had cut with all the people. Now, the covenant is explained earlier in Zechariah, and but it's nothing that is different from just the general, you know, covenant with the Jewish people where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will dwell with you and protect you. That's the covenant in a nutshell. Then Zechariah tells the people, give me my shepherd's pay if you want to. Doesn't matter to me. And so they pay him 30 pieces of silver an insultingly small price to place on the Lord's shepherd. And the Lord tells Zechariah to fling this paltry sum to the potter, as it represents not only how the people value Zechariah, but how they value the Lord God himself. And Zechariah does give the money to the potter, and then he cuts the second staff in two, the one he named Union. He cuts it in two to signify an ongoing scattering and suffering of God's people. Then the Lord tells Zechariah to once again take up his shepherd's implements as a sign to the people. The Lord says, since you despise the good shepherd, I will raise up a shepherd who will not care for the weak and the young, nor the wounded, nor even the healthy, but will strip away all that the sheep have. Nevertheless, woe to this worthless shepherd who abandons his flock. The sword will fall upon him. His arm will wither and his eye will be blinded. And of course, all of this does happen to God's people, to Israel and Judah over the ensuing centuries in the form of leaders and conquerors who are unjust and hard of heart. Well, Zechariah's prophecy was 500 years or so before Jesus. But Matthew sees it as a messianic prophecy being fulfilled now. Jesus is the good shepherd sent by God. And like Zechariah before him, the people don't want a good shepherd. Even though Jesus does good things for them, the people still want what they want, which is a military coup, and Jesus will not provide it. So this account of Judas and the 30 pieces of silver that are given to a potter is only in Matthew, and he's the one who makes the connection to this old prophecy in Zechariah. Mark and Luke do not specify the amount of money given to Judas, nor do they mention the potter's field like Matthew does. So you'll have to decide whether or not you think Matthew is embellishing the Judas story to make it match Zechariah. But whether or not the amount paid for Jesus is actually 30 pieces of silver, or whether there is indeed a link to a potter, Matthew is right this whole situation with Jesus does seem to be fulfilling the underlying message of Zechariah's prophecy. The people are rejecting the good shepherd God has sent them. 
beginning tonight with the trial by the Sanhedrin, the tide of public opinion turns against Jesus. He cannot even save himself, they think. How then can he save us from Rome? How then can he be the Messiah? It is now just after dawn on Thursday morning. On a side note, in John's gospel, he's got the days shifted back one. This, along with many other details, are different between the gospels, so I'm giving you my best estimates of the sequence of the story. Also, remember that all of this is written down at least second or third hand since none of these gospel writers could have been present for many of the conversations and events they've recorded, and they don't write it down for like, you know, 50 years, 30, 40, 50 years. It's, you know, so the fact that the details don't match up is no big shock. So anyway, it's very early in the morning, just after dawn, and the Sanhedrin binds Jesus and sends him to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is the Roman prefect sent to replace Herod Archelaus after Herod was deposed by the Romans and sent to Gaul. Pontius Pilate governs the pink part on this map, Samaria in the north and Judea and Idumea in the south. Pilate's been the Roman prefect here since right around the time Jesus began his ministry, just a few years. He's a high-ranking Roman knight of the equestrian order. He has military under his command. He is so cruel that in a few years from now, he will attack the Samaritans on their holy mountain, Mount Gerizim, and he will end up being called back to Rome to stand trial for cruelty and oppression. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, one of the accusations against him will be that he executes men without a proper trial. So Pilate generally spends his time up in Caesarea, which is a gorgeous seaside town. But he's definitely in Jerusalem at the moment to keep the peace during the Passover festival. He's got troops with him. Herod Antipas, who is the ruler appointed by Rome over the green area of this map, that area up north um, that includes Galilee, Herod Antipas is also in Jerusalem for the Passover. In fact, tradition has it that earlier in the week, as Jesus entered the city through the eastern gates to, to the cries of Hosanna, Herod entered the city from the north through Herod's gate, and Pontius Pilate entered the city from the west, likely through the Jaffa gate. Now, that can be a big story, but whether their entries were simultaneous or not, we do know that all three of them are in Jerusalem now. So back to the story. The religious leaders have taken Jesus prisoner, tried him, heard him confess that he is the Messiah, and have brought him to Pilate. Once there, they tell Pilate, this man has been corrupting the nation, preventing people from paying their taxes to Caesar and declaring himself to be king. This, of course, is complete hogwash. But these are charges they know Rome will take seriously. What's interesting is that the religious leaders and the people seem to be perfectly willing to stone someone on religious grounds. They've tried to stone Jesus several times already. But to hang Jesus up on a cross as a dangerous criminal, they need the Romans. At this point, stoning is apparently too mild of a death to suit them. Jesus must be publicly crucified. He must be tortured and shamed in the most vile death possible in this day and time. So Pilate questions Jesus and asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, well, are you asking this for yourself or is this something others have said about me? And Pilate's like, Don't play word games with me. How would I know if you're king of the Jews? I'm not a Jew. Your own religious leaders handed you over to me. What have you done? 
And Jesus says, my kingdom is not a worldly one. If it were, my troops would be fighting, so I could not be handed over to the Jews. And Pilate says, ah, so you are a king then. And Jesus answers, you're saying that I am. I I have indeed been born for this. I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now stop here and notice that Jesus does not say he came into the world to save us from sin or keep us out of hell. At this crucial point, Jesus says he came to bear witness to the truth. He has done that faithfully throughout his entire life, and he will keep doing it until he is killed. Jesus talks about people listening. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. He's not talking about being crucified. He's talking about what he came to do with his life. And Pilate says, "Uh uh-huh, right. What is truth anyway? He probably thinks Jesus is a nutcase. And he goes out to the religious leaders and all the people who have begun to gather. And he says, I can't find anything to charge this man with. But the leaders keep insisting he stirs up the people. What they're telling Pilate is that Jesus is inciting rebellion against Rome. He's disturbing the peace. And that, as you know, is a very big deal. During Jesus' lifetime, Rome has already crushed at least three such local rebellions that we know of historically. Pilate says to Jesus, don't you hear these accusations? What have you got to say for yourself? But Jesus remains silent. The religious leaders say to Pilate, he started stirring up the people in Galilee and now the unrest has spread all the way down here to Judea. Well, when Pilate hears the word Galilee, his ears perk up. He knows Herod Antipas is in town for the Passover. Galilee is Herod's responsibility. So Pilate has Jesus taken straight over to where Herod is staying. Herod is actually thrilled to see Jesus. I think he might be bored. He's hoping for some entertainment here, maybe some signs and wonders, a miracle or two. The chief priests and the other high-ranking religious leaders, of course, have followed Jesus into Herod's presence, and they keep accusing Jesus of various crimes. So Herod, Herod peppers Jesus with questions, but Jesus remains utterly silent. There is no answering someone like that. Herod isn't really asking, and for sure he's not listening. Finally, Herod loses patience with Jesus' silence. This isn't any fun at all. His curiosity turns to cruelty. He and his soldiers mock Jesus, dress him in fancy clothes, and send him back to Pontius Pilate. Pilate gathers the chief priests, the religious leaders, and the people and says, you have accused this man of stirring the people to rebellion. But I've questioned him and find no such thing. And neither has Herod. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now, it's customary at Passover for the Romans to release one prisoner. And Pilate has figured out that the charges against Jesus have been trumped up by the religious leaders for their own personal purposes. He figures the crowd will be on Jesus' side. So he asks the crowd, would you like me to release the king of the Jews? But the religious leaders, seeing which way the wind is blowing, have been circulating among the crowd crying, Barabbas, release Barabbas. Now, Barabbas actually is an insurrectionist who is being held for the killings that occurred during his rebellion. And as we know, Jesus has bitterly disappointed the crowd.
They can see he obviously isn't the Messiah. He cannot even save himself. So following the lead of the religious leaders, the whole crowd begins to shout, Barabbas, we want Barabbas. Pilate points to Jesus and says, if I release Barabbas, then what shall I do with this man? And the crowd shouts, crucify him, crucify him. Now, Pilate is disturbed by this. While he's been sitting there, his wife has sent him an urgent message saying, don't get involved with that righteous man. I have had a vivid and disturbing dream of this today. Seeing that he's getting nowhere with the crowd or the religious leaders, Pilate hands Jesus over to be flogged. His plan is still to punish Jesus and then release him. He's hoping the flogging will be enough to satisfy this bloodthirsty crowd. After the flogging, the soldiers take Jesus into the praetorium, which is Pilate's headquarters, and they fashion a crown of thorns and crush it onto Jesus' head. They mock him and kneel to him, give him a staff as a scepter. Hail, King of the Jews, they say, as they hit him and spit on him. Then, tiring of their fun, they dress him in his own clothes and bring him out again. Once again, Pilate asks the crowd, what shall I do with this man? Hoping to get a different answer this time. But the crowd shouts, crucify him, crucify him. Exasperated, Pilate says to the religious leaders, you go crucify him. Well, of course, the religious leaders can't actually do that. Rome has to do it. Pilate has to order it done by his soldiers. So they say, He's violated our law. He has called himself the son of God and he must die for this. Now, this son of God bit combined with his wife's dream actually alarms Pilate. Remember that in this culture, people believe the gods are very involved in everyday life. So Pilate goes back to Jesus and asks, where are you from? And he's, he doesn't mean Galilee. He needs to know if Jesus is some sort of God. But Jesus remains silent. There's nothing he can say that would make any sense at all to Pilate. Frustrated, Pilate says, don't you know I hold your life in my hands? I have the power to release you or to crucify you. But Jesus says, you have no power over me except what is given to you from above. It is those who handed me over to you who have sinned. Again, Pilate goes to the religious leaders, but they say, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. He has claimed to be king. We have no king but Caesar. And Pilate realizes he has no choice here. The people are still shouting, crucify him. The crowd is getting completely out of control. This is Pilate's worst nightmare. He can get fired over something like this. So Pilate washes his hands in front of the people and says, I am innocent of this man's blood. And the people say, let his blood be on our heads. Now I want to say here that this story and all its various versions has been used by Christians to condemn Jews ever since. I want to point out that number one, within, even within each gospel, this story is a mashup of all kinds of versions of the events. So who knows exactly what was said and what happened? And number two, the crowd is quite clearly in mob mode. They are not thinking about religion at all. This is not about God or devout Jews or Judaism. This is about bloodlust and violence. This is humanity at its worst, and it has nothing to do with being Jewish. Pilate has tried to satisfy the mob, but he's only made things worse. 
And so all that is left to Pilate is to release Barabbas and sentence Jesus to death by crucifixion. Now, obviously, all of this back and forth over to Herod, questioning by Herod, mocking by Herod's soldiers, back to Pilate, messages from Pilate's wife, back and forth with the religious leaders and the crowd, the flogging of Jesus, the mocking of Jesus by the soldiers, dressing him, undressing him, redressing him, more back and forth with the religious leaders and Jesus and the crowd, releasing Barabbas, etc. All of that has taken quite a bit of time. I think we are now near sundown on Thursday. I suspect these events have taken all day long, and my guess is that when Barabbas is released, Jesus is thrown into the vacated cell. I think Jesus spends the night in his cell, possibly enduring more mocking and torturing at the hands of the guards. He is definitely losing blood after being so cruelly flogged. By morning, he will be weak, possibly already dying. There are a lot of undercurrents here among Herod, Pilate, the religious leaders, and the people. Fear of Rome, fear of losing power or position, consternation that Jesus has not saved himself and called the power of heaven down on the Romans. Let's let these ideas bounce off each other in our breakout groups today. Let's think about how all these undercurrents interacted to create a perfect storm resulting in Jesus' crucifixion. Hello, hello. Who got cut off in mid-sentence? Julia. <laughs> Julia. No, I finished my sentence. <laughs> what did y'all think? What did you come up with here? Well, we needed a little more time because we needed to hear from Brian, too. <laughs> well, things haven't changed a whole lot. The rich and the powerful will still do everything, no matter how evil, mm -hmm. to keep their riches and keep their power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Then that's a, a modern day current example in her experience that reflected a lot of this dynamic that we saw all these different factions vying for power and control and um, misinformation and misperception. Etc. <laughs> yeah. Who was it you said had a modern example? Julia. 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 What did you say, Julia? Well, this last legislative session, it was a high priority. They've been trying to do this for some time. But five years ago, the court I'm on flipped political parties. Suddenly. And I have worked for that court, started out with it being three and three, and then it's four and two, five and one, six. Then it was four and two, five and two, six, the opposite political party from the governor. And they don't like that. And the governor is quoted saying it's a liberal, nonsensical opinion court. And, and that's not true. I work with these people and I know that every single one of them, even when it was the other party, did their very best to do justice for the people. And they went out and decided to create two new courts, one for business and one for administrative. And the governor is going to appoint the um, judges, which will not happen till September 1st of next year, but it became law September 1st of this year. But there is no court. But he's going to appoint these judges 
And then they're going to have to run for re-election as incumbents. Incumbents get elected because people know the names and they think they're doing a good job. What they are doing is taking away our complicated and very important cases and giving them to these new courts. We did nothing wrong. We were keeping up with those courts. We were meeting our quotas. There was no reason for this other than politics. Gotcha. And so that is very difficult to deal with because it's like, what did we do wrong? We didn't do anything wrong. Why is this happening? Well, it's just politics and that's the way it is where I live. You just have to uh, uh, deal with it. And that's what was going on with the Jewish people were squabbling amongst themselves and they were not liking what Jesus was holding them accountable for. He was saying, you say this and you behave this way. And he was calling them out and they did not like that. You know, if he had never challenged their authority, he'd have been just fine. Well, maybe not. He healed people on the Sabbath. He broke a few rules, you know? <laughs> but if if it had not come to light that made them feel insecure in their experience, then it might have slid under the radar, but that was not to be. And then the, the Romans... They just wanted their handout collecting the taxes. They didn't want to have to increase law enforcement to keep the peace because of all this Jewish squabbling. They wanted them to just settle down, pay their taxes, and be a non-issue. Mm-hmm. You know, just fade into the woodwork. But there was this grassroots effort going on by this guy, this very liberal guy, who was saying, love your neighbor. I don't care about the rest. Love your God. That's what he wants. And that's why you're here to help one another. And it just is still going on. Like Brian said, the rich and powerful (laughs) will do whatever it takes to maintain the status quo for them. And the experience I told you about that's maintaining power, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. What else did so that's that's remarkable? And Julia's going to turn into an evangelist. I'm telling you. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, that was beautifully expressed. <laughs> Yes. What else did y'all talk about? Maybe in one of the groups, Renee. Did y'all what did y'all talk about? Well, we were talking about um, how there were other rebellions. So Caesar had already put down some things. But uh, we also talked about where this was taking place. It wasn't like on the street corner where the everyday people were. So the people yelling for Barabbas were not just the people that Jesus associated with. Like out in the country, like out yeah. in Galilee and out in all the people he's healed all over Samaria and everything. Certainly yeah. Samaritans so, aren't there for Passover. It was kind of it was kind of like the Sanhedrin seated the the jury, if you will. <laughs> um and one thing that I didn't realize that until the way you explained it about Judas. I always heard Judas killed himself because he was so ashamed. But he killed himself because he was unconsolable because he had no idea what was going to happen. Right. So that that was my first stumbling block with this class. It was like I'd never heard that. And then I did not until you took it through the steps and slowed it down. I didn't realize how many times Pontius Pilate was like, hey, people, 
<laughs> he didn't do anything. Let him go. You know, and it wasn't until he was afraid that there was going to be a riot and he was going to either die or get lose his position that he decided, I got to I got to appease these people. Yeah, it really helps having had the context, especially like back in the when uh, those of you who were in the series on the Apocrypha, when, you know, when the Jews had, were gaining their independence and 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 then they lose it again. And it, all of this is happening like in this little microcosm of time. It, it starts to make a whole lot more sense. Some of this dialogue. I really like how the Bible speeds it up. Like Renee said, you slowed it down. I, I don't like seeing the pictures of Jesus being flogged and the and the purple robes with the seepage from his wounds on it and all. I, I like to just, yeah, he, he was tortured and he then got crucified. Let's just leave it nice and sanitized like that. <laughs> the problem with leaving it sanitized like that is that then the story can be twisted. And it is. Because because if you actually read and listen to the stories that people are, are telling you here and hear Jesus' words as best they remember them, you know, then you, I at least, am not getting any sense at all in any of these stories that God is a play major player in this who needs to have Jesus crucified in order to not be mad. Yeah. Exactly. I do in fact I think the opposite. I would think, man, those guys are going to get struck by lightning <laughs> for crucifying right. Jesus, you know? You know, you are the first person, Gail, who's pointed out that we don't get any kind of glimpse of how God is reacting to all of this. God is absent until I think. Silent, yes. Silent, thank you, silent. Um, and even Jesus, G, I'm going to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use absent carefully. Jesus finally calls on God. What should you do? With his last breath. My God, my God, absent. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus felt God as absent. And then says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Reconnects himself to, to God there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we will we there are some interesting things in play there in that part that you're quoting that i can't wait to get to <laughs> but you are absolutely right to observe that god has you know hands off hands off this is people don't make me part of this that's right Conscious pilot felt that same way. This exactly. And this is this is your choice, people. And that's why I was trying to put all the bubbles on there. One of the bubbles isn't that God needs Jesus to die. Mm -hmm. Now, I a lot of that does get said later in the Bible, and we're gonna get there and we're gonna talk about it, you know. Mm -hmm. But I want you to be really clear about what Jesus said and what God didn't say here. Well, and even the narrative by the gospel writers, there is not an intimation in how they documented the story that this was God's will, that this was why God had sent Jesus to earth. Um, in, in the whole narrative of the gospel, there is not that mention uh, that that God sent Jesus on the earth to die on the cross and that his blood would wash us of our sins and blah, 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 blah. Right. Um, this, this is an outplaying of, as Julia said, the local political situation, the, um, the, the 
power play that was going on um, amongst the Jewish leaders, amongst the Romans, against the people, uh, you know, between all those dynamics. And Jesus was a threat to the power structure. Um, but there is nothing there that says God sent Jesus to the earth to die on the cross for our sins. Right. Now, there was back when he was born, the Gospels do have, you know, the the angels <laughs> and this fulfills all the prophecies for the Messiah and his name is God with us. And he is is he has come to save us. He saves God saves salvation, saving all that language about Messiah and saving happens at Jesus birth. And um, it it that the word means making whole. That word salvation means to make whole, to to restore, to to fill up, to restore. To you know, it does mean you know saving somebody from drowning. <laughs> you know, it does mean that kind of save. But we've taken it out of context. You have to take all of that in the context of Jesus whole life and witness which was not he he just he was all about healing people mm-hmm. in every possible way including from sin you know but it was always in their hands just he would heal them and he would say you know go and don't keep doing that <laughs> you know? yeah or or and, your faith has healed you that's right. And then at the end of he and all very and consistently, he said that, didn't he, Marlene, to people is like, you did. This is in your hands, your faith in God, you know, your faith, you believing in in me and who I am, believing I can do this. This is this is this is what is healing you is is understanding that this gift is available to you free from God. So when Jesus talks about the crucifixion and how he has to die, that doesn't happen until he's like within weeks of it happening. And he's trying to warn his disciples, guys, don't fall apart. This is about to happen. I want you to think about it and be ready. Yeah. It wasn't theological. Go ahead. Martha um, triggered two, two thoughts on mine, her comments. And this is going to show how shallow I am. I'm sorry. But I have two thoughts. One, was it documented what happened to the people who crucified Christ? Like the soldiers? And Do we know anything of that? We we know what one of them said. That's all we know. That's it. And then the other thing is the part about God being hands off during this time and and this may be biblical it may not i i do not know there's so much in there and then there's what i was taught in life but i have always observed three hours of silence from noon to three and that was because the earth turned dark and god had withdrawn from our presence Mm -hmm. is that biblical not the withdrawing part the the darkness earthquakes you know that definitely it was significant and whether that it was significant because that really happened or it was significant because the, this is how the writers wrote that in to say, this is a big deal, you know, that Jesus died um, is, is up to you. It's kind of like there's different versions of it, but it was without a doubt significant. Jesus death is not a small thing. Jesus yeah is the Messiah. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus was sent as a great gift to us, laying down his divinity and becoming so human that we could do this to him, that he becoming this vulnerable. And for us to trample on that gift like we did, and for God not to wipe us out is something 
that we should fall on our faces for three hours on Good Friday over, for sure. Martha. One thing that Martha um, brought to my mind is um, you said something about God not being present or withholding. I wonder if he was waiting to see if the people would finally do the right thing. Oh. Wow. Because he always gives everybody free choice. Mm -hmm. And he's not going to take somebody's free choice just because they're being they made, idiots. They made a bad choice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, Martha and, had something to say. I know. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Renee. No, that's fine. That was it. Well, you alluded to, to something that I want to elaborate on a little bit. Um, where God did not take revenge in that moment. Um, God is acting very differently here than God did at Jesus' birth, as you pointed out, or that was recognized God at work uh, in the lead up to and Jesus' birth. But all the way up to, well, through so much of, the, the Old Testament, God brings armies. God empowers armies. It's armies, 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 armies. And God is acting very differently here, saying, I'm done with the armies. I'm done. Which then, 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 then gives you pause to think, did God change God's mind about how the world should be ordered and how God's work should be done. Whew. Or was he just misinterpreted by the people who wrote the Bible that said that God was, you know, vengeful and warful and, you know, all about war. Mm -hmm. it, it makes you think that, you know, the God of the old Testament, I've heard a lot of people say, well, that's God changed. God changed with Jesus. God doesn't change. But God doesn't change. And so I'm wondering if it's just the fact that people trying to tell other people about God got it wrong. Hmm. All through the Old Testament when it was all about war. Because they were fighting wars all the time for survival. And they were also fighting them for reasons like these bubbles, you know. Yeah political stuff. Marlene, you had mm -hmm. it. Yeah, this this conversation brought about to my mind, which is it could be seen as not that God changed or that God changed God's mind, but that the people had not changed. And that, you know, you have this this centuries of history of fighting and winning or fighting and being defeated, fighting and being taken into exile, coming back, starting over, having a bad king, starting over, over and over and over and over, the cycle of, of, of warfare not being the resolution to the problem. And yet the people were still looking for that ultimate warrior king who was going to come and solve the problem. And it and and the thought occurred to me that this might have been God saying, okay, you people have not learned in all this time. You have not learned that relying on armies and relying on a specific human individual is not going to solve the problem that what you need to do is turn to me. Um, and that that might be part of why, why it didn't play out the way the people expected it to. And it did require a major shift in perspective for the followers of Jesus and then the beginning of the church. Um, that God was saying, okay, hopefully now you have learned this didn't work. <laughs> Let's do this new thing. 
and and um, see where that takes us. Of course, as humans, we still ended up in war, in conflict, looking for you know the big the big human leader. We we haven't learned the lesson even today, but God was and Jesus through Jesus's ministry was trying to show a new way of being with each other and with God. Yeah, Jesus never ever said he was going to do armies. Martha, yeah. I see you thinking deeply. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so um on the one hand, I feel um very validated about uh something that I was getting a little squirmy about recently how I taught um the difference between the Old and New Testament when I taught third grade Sunday school. And I still have a little, so I'll I'll tell you what I'm still a little squirmy about. But I used to teach that the Old Testament was what we understood, what we understood about God before Jesus and that the New Testament was what we understood about God because of Jesus. And I think that a lot of that really simplistic explanation is validated i'm feeling validated here i also am very mindful that um the new testament doesn't speak to everyone and that jews are still faithfully that they're faithful to their scriptures i would also suggest that jews aren't stuck they 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 think that the scriptures are for digging into and understanding. Um, so uh, that that was what was just processing big time. Yeah, I can see it percolating. And I and I I you know I spend I love the Old Testament. That that is my first love. I'm having you know the New Testament. I see God so clearly in the, in the old Testament and in the gospels. Um, but, but what I see in the old Testament is as Renee was saying, people having wars that God didn't ever ordain what you know they're doing it politically they're having civil wars which was never in the plan (laughs) you know um the whole idea from the get-go with god was trust me i will provide don't worry about the uh, the armies of the people in these lands i'll take care of it it's all going to be fine you know and it and and people fought the wars and then people um and they and the and the and the and the Israel and Judah were subject to barbaric practices by the people who conquered them all right and that came out sideways in their scripture the things that were done to them they wanted done right back <laughs> to the those enemies and they wrote that and god says kabam you know um but if you read beyond that, beyond that context, you find over and over and over again in all the prophecies that it resolves to God saying, but all this is going to be over. This is not how it's going to be. You are wounded I am going to come and bind your wounds. I am going to restore your health. I'm going to put you back and I am going to come and there is going to be a time of peace such that you can not even imagine how wonderful it is going to be. There's not only not going to be any more war, the animals, there's not even going to be any more predators. There's not going to be any people dying before the age of a hundred. If they die at a hundred, people are going to think they died young. It's going to be, life is going to bubble up so much through my people. God has always been about this. Thank you, Gail. 
Um, can I circle back to something Renee triggered in me? Thank you for what your first comments were about seating the crowd and all. I had never thought about it before, but that makes sense that the people that would have been there would have been the $2,500 a plate donors. <laughs> and that's who was there. And those were the ones calling for Barabbas, not the woman by the well been too risky to let the others in yeah then you would have your insurrection and Pilate would have troubles and he would be gone and certainly and just, people did I never thought of that people did the common people did come to Jerusalem who could that though it was kind of like if you were within three days journey you should come and you're a male you should come a Jewish male you should come to Jerusalem and obviously not everybody's going to be able to afford to do that right I think she's referring to in in the inner circle in the inner in the oh yeah political inner circle when Herod and Pilate are uh, oh yeah the people in the dialogue yeah. are the $2,500 a plate folks yeah and, and they are seating the rest of the crowd with the Barabbas and the you know well, and that's really interesting, I think, because because the way we see it portrayed or the way we have understood it is that it was like everyone in Jerusalem was crowded into the space when actually when you think about Jerusalem, there wouldn't have been room for that yeah. to happen. This was a much smaller crowd than we envision or that we ever saw in the big epics. Yeah, it's not a Cecil B. DeMille crowd. No. And and so Julia, your your point is probably very well taken that that it was um the people who already were aligned with the leadership who had come and it probably didn't take a whole lot of seeding I mean, certainly coaching on what to say. And then again, mob mentality, bloodlust wouldn't take long if the people were already sympathetic to to go. So it wasn't like the people who'd been following Jesus for three years on mass suddenly turned against him in this moment that that. But that is the way it has always been portrayed. I know, but the way it's always been presented is always never say always <laughs> never say never never say always but um but the way it's it's been presented is we have palm sunday and everybody is hosanna 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 and then we have easter and uh, i mean jesus died already you know and mm -hmm. and you get whiplash so until you actually slow it down and and look at the layers that are happening here and why the people who are calling Hosanna, they at that point they think Jesus is about to call down legions of angels, you know, to smash the Romans. And then all this stuff happens with the Sanhedrin on Thursday. Jesus is arrested and he can't even he can't even keep himself from getting whipped. And the people are disillusioned. They are primed for the seeding that's done by the same they are being manipulated and they're ready for it mm -hmm. yeah. wow it's like gail i so appreciate your your leadership and storytelling and facts that you find and share with us but the other thing is this group and their insights and where we go with it leaves you with a blessing for the week and questions. <laughs> and, but it's such a wonderful inner, it's like Bible Google, you know, because it's all interconnected and it takes you to another place and makes you want to know more things that you didn't even know you needed to know in the first place. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and having the group, this group has is, is just been wonderful. And, you know, we've kind of solidified into a, you know, about 15 people that just are here and part of this journey and have been for a, quite a while now. And, um, and I think we're growing. And I think the Holy Spirit is really doing deep work in all of us. You can't, you can't study this 
over a period of time like this without it doing deep work in your soul, without you even knowing. And it's just, I'm kind of scared to do acts now. (laughs) 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 And speaking of, speaking of that, I need to tell you a couple of things. Um, um, I am uh, not going to publish this video today because as soon as we're done, I'm leaving for to go where Julia is for a, a, a retreat, Paper Pals oh, retreat. Yeah. So I'm not going to be back till Monday. And so I'll do the processing and posting on Monday. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is um, be, because I am telling the story the way I am and acts uh covers such a long period of time and Paul's letters get interleaved in there I'm having to do so much research and thought and care around how I present the story to you so Mm -hmm. that we do preserve the context and things so we may come to a point here in another week or two where I need to take a little extra time between a class or two here and there mm-hmm. as we go through the new Testament because of the volume of research that I'm having to do. So, you know, we may have two classes in a month as opposed to every single week in some of the times. And so I'm going <laughs> to, when I need, I, I was kind of dissolving into um, a puddle of stress and tears and um, my friend Janet Cotts, um, and and Shelby both were like, Gail, they will understand if you need oh, to, yeah. if you need yeah. to take it slower. Um, and so, absolutely. And this so that's a blessing, not a burden, Gail. That may be yes. that may be what has to happen for me to be able to function. So, well, didn't you last year, and I think the year before, didn't you take a about a month break? I do. Well, I take a break between Thanksgiving and the new year because okay. I want that to be family time, but I don't want uh-huh. to be working on classes during that time. Exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. I want I that to- there was a, a couple of years ago, we, we took the summer off. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. Several weeks. We took a month off here. Sometimes I just, you know, it gets to a point where my family life and everything else that's going on in my life requires a break, but this will be the first time that we have to take a break because of the work itself, mm-hmm. because there is so much as we get close, we're as we get close in, in the new Testament, we have a whole lot more information in that time frame, And there's a lot of other sources outside of the Bible that need to be considered and folded in and a lot of history happening that we know about. So it's yeah. just a lot to manage. So that's, yeah, that's if, fine. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, can I just say one thing before we go? Totally different topic. And with apologies to Julia. Um, something that you said, Gail, about Jesus being weakened, you know, yeah. like staying overnight in prison. Losing and blood. Physically weakened because of bleeding. As a nurse, the thing that came to me immediately was with the severity of the beatings that are recorded, I would not be at all surprised if based on, on the observation you made, if he was had a ruptured spleen or oh. a ruptured liver or a ruptured kidney and that Likely. there was a lot of internal bleeding going on. Likely. And I, because I had always been puzzled by the fact that while most people took days and days and days to die, when Jesus was put up on the cross, he died within a very short period of time relative to hours. Time, within hours as opposed to days. And I'd heard it explained by pastors of that's because Jesus gave up his life. It wasn't that he died from, you know, the normal causes. He willingly gave up his life. But, you know, just from a nursing physiology medical perspective, you know, I thought, okay, well, I can accept that if that's really true, but it always just kind of didn't settle. But what you said today, that that piece sort of fell into place for me, like a missing piece in a puzzle was that if he, you know, 
there could be many internal organs damaged or one that was a particularly vital organ that would cause massive internal bleeding. And could, I mean, I've seen people in the ER who suffered a, a bleeding and two or three days later came into the ER because they were in such bad shape and they had a ruptured spleen yeah, or, or mm-hmm. something along those lines. That would make a lot of sense to me. And it makes more sense as to why he couldn't carry his cross. Yes. Yeah. Why he was stumbling going up he just the, couldn't do it. those streets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, um, that again is a very human part of the story to me. Yeah, Jesus, com- mm-hmm. what Jesus committed to do was to be fully human all the way to the end. And that is remarkable. Surely, I have a question for um, Marlene since she just said that. Um, I always heard that when they poked Jesus in the side with the sword or spear Spear. Mm -hmm. and blood and water flowed mingled together from that wound, that that was because he was already dead and his heart or something had ruptured. And that's why it looked like water and blood mixed. Well, well, my, that... under, my understanding from things that I have heard or read was that frequently when someone appeared dead, but they weren't sure they would do this piercing to, to get um, it over with. right. Yeah. To sort, you know, just to make sure that, 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 you know, if they weren't already dead, they would be dead quickly. Um, the 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 blood mixed with water thing could indicate that there had been some already coagulation and separating, but part of that could have been because of a ruptured internal organ. Um, it, that is I, releasing it, it fluid. Would normally, it would ordinarily yeah. take hours and hours for that to happen if they just had died of natural causes, you know, or of suffocation, but. You know, either the time was dramatically telescoped in the telling um, and Jesus had been hanging there dead for several hours, or it could be the result of internal injury. Wow. Really interesting. Well, we're about to get to that part. So we'll talk about this next time. And I love you guys to death and you have a wonderful week and we'll see you next Thursday. Bye too. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. See you soon. See you soon, Julia. See you soon.